0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra. Informa. Welcome back. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental content on Terra Informa. This week, we ask when trouble arises, Who will speak for the trees? Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Metis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Our story today takes place in so-called Nelson, British Columbia, a municipality on the shores of Kootenai Lake. Nelson sits on the historic and present territory of the Tunaha, Sinaiaks, and Siuk nations. This week, we're listening to a story about speaking up for our non-human relations when they need us. The protection of trees is bound up with the knowledge systems of many indigenous nations who have been protecting trees for generations. Many indigenous knowledge systems have long placed trees in a position to be respected and cared for. Take this opportunity to reflect on how you can reframe your relationship with these species and those who steward them. Think about memories you may have of climbing trees, wrapping your arms around them, or sitting under them, enjoying the shade of their canopy. On both an individual and collective level, the protection of these leafy giants has always been important, and the urgency to protect these ancient species only grows with the increasing threats of climate change, wildfire, industry, and development. Indigenous land defenders have long led the effort to protect endangered old-growth trees on a large scale. But as we'll hear today, You can be called to speak up for the trees right in your own backyard first let's listen in to a conversation between terra informer elizabeth dowdell an environmental advocate and nelson resident kelsey moore in may of this year kelsey found herself holding a tree sit to advocate for the protection of an old growth red cedar at the edge of the property where she lives the tree was slated to be removed by the neighboring property owners And Kelsey was motivated to act on the tree's behalf, to speak for the tree. Let's listen to the story of, as Kelsey puts it, how an activist was born right in her own backyard.
1: My name is Kelsey Moore, and I grew up in St. Albert outside of Edmonton. And I moved to Edmonton When I finished high school and lived there for 10 years, um, I finished a couple of degrees at the University of Alberta there. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Recreation and Tourism and a Master of Arts in Leisure Studies. I moved to Nelson, B.C. about three years ago because I wanted to be closer to nature and to orient my life around The leisure experiences I love most, so hiking, camping, gardening, I love to snowboard and go on adventures in general, so that's me. So I live in an area of Nelson called Uphill Nelson, which Nelson is built on the side of a mountainside. So... Nice place to live, and I live in a property that used to have a vacant lot behind it, so it was just trees, Um, a lot of trees back there, and nothing on the property. It wasn't clear who owned it. And then one day, last week, it was Tuesday, May 19th, 2020, um, a local tree removal company. Um began clear cutting all of the trees back there. Um, it's a privately owned lot back there, I guess, as is the property that I live on. i don't I don't own the property, but I'm a tenant here. Uh, I overheard that they were discussing more trees that were going to be removed in the following days and um, kind of presumably to open up the view um, for the people behind us to see Cooten Lake. Um, I saw them referring to, uh, a, a large old red cedar that was in a cluster of other ones in our backyard, really beautiful, large old trees. Like if I were to hug it, my hands would go much halfway around it. And so I, I calmly kind of asked the contractor about what was going to happen with the tree. It looked like it was actually right on the property line based on the pins they'd surveyed. Um, and when I asked him about the tree, he responded in quite an unnecessarily complicational, rude, kind of dismissive manner, um, to communicate that the tree was gonna be removed and he said, They're all going. I I don't care about these trees. They aren't real trees anyways. <laughs> and then kind of left mm-hmm. the conversation abruptly. And I was a bit taken aback by this whole interaction, you know. It approached in a in a friendly manner, just to get more information and was met with with this kind of energy. So, anyways, I, I called our landowner and told him what was going to happen, and he was quite upset because the big reason why he purchased that lot was because of the, the beautiful trees in the backyard, and he thought they were like gold. And so, he was quite distraught, and he was trying to contact the owner of the other property, but was finding it really difficult um, after that to actually contact him because the, the tree company doing the work, as well as the realtor that had sold him the lot, um, weren't releasing his information. So, since he was sort of refusing to communicate with our landowner, we decided at that point that you know the whole situation didn't feel right, it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and we wanted to do what we could to protect the tree, so we decided we would do a tree sit, sort of peacefully occupy the area in our own backyard near the tree to try and delay its removal until the situation could be better assessed and the, the property line could be ascertained by all parties.
0: The sit-in to protect this single red cedar is situated within a history of indigenous land defense of old growth and endangered trees. The 1993 Clackwood Sound protests, also known as the War in the Woods, were a turning point for tree protection in British Columbia. Nuu-chah-nulth Nation community members and allies came together in blockades to prevent logging of the old growth rainforest on Vancouver Island. Today. Fourteen Neutral Nuth First Nations continue to steward the south, central, and northern regions of Vancouver Island's coastlines and forests. So what is the state of these old growth forests today? A recent independent report conducted by scholars from the Bulkley Valley Research Center, Nelson-based Viridian Ecological Consulting, and Simon Fraser University, concluded that the vast majority of BC's old-growth forest is made up of very small trees. The large old-growth trees we envision are only found across 3% of the province, and even the trees at these sites have been largely decimated and will not recover from the effects of intensive logging. The tree-sit in our story today was a pivotal moment of individual action that resonated for Kelsey on an emotional level, but she shares her feelings that it may have not been enough.
1: Strung up a line of line between the survey pins to make sure it was really clear like where the, the property line actually was, and we sat in our own backyard um, near the large tree that was going to be removed, and just had our coffee and our breakfast like we often do normally. Uh, the bylaw a bylaw officer came by at one point and you know was pretty unsure and he said, he thought it would be a, a civic matter and would be related to small claims court. And so, you know, that wasn't really satisfying because, it's like, well, once the tree is removed, the damage is done. It's irreparable. It's a loss of a beautiful life. So our landowner called us and communicated that they were going to strike a compromise with the other owner um, or the tree company to top less than 25 percent of the total tree which would leave the tree alive and standing. Um, which is not ideal for trees. It's actually can be quite problematic for them. It's not a very nice thing to do to a tree, but you know, with this all that came out of nowhere, we were just trying to do what we could to save the tree rather than having it be removed entirely. My owner told us that he was satisfied with that and so we moved away from the tree and we videotaped all of it and we videotaped them taking down the top part of the tree as well from a safe distance away. Um, yeah, it felt, it felt good. It felt like a nice victory, but I also had a kind of a lingering feeling that this wasn't the end of the story. Next day, Thursday, the 21st, um, they were still doing a lot of work back there. And so I just had my coffee in my garden. Another normal day, um shortly thereafter, they cut down the tree entirely. There was an agreement made, but it was not honored. Mm. And the tree was being cut down to make space for our neighbors to better see the Kootenai lake and it was viewed by the contractor as a nuisance tree, kind of like a weed, and we tried to protect it because it was beautiful, it was old, it was healthy. And we didn't think it deserved to be killed to satiate this interminable march of human development.
0: This kind of attitude is not endemic to the town of Nelson. A couple of months ago, right here in Edmonton, trees were cut down illegally in my own neighborhood of Parkview. The residents killed these tall, living beings for a better view of the city skyline. Over the past few years, this kind of behavior has unfortunately been common among the homeowners in this desirable neighborhood along the banks of the North Saskatchewan River. Kelsey shares a different perspective, one that acknowledges the ways in which trees enrich our lives and how they can be a model for us to follow and learn from.
2: There was a couple things you said in your description there that really stood out to me. So one was this idea of like measuring a tree in hugs that you could only wrap your arms <laughs> halfway around it That yeah. really was beautiful and this idea of a tree is a beautiful life uh, Yeah. so I'm wondering if we can um just maybe like expand on that a little bit and talk about uh, like why what drove you to protect this tree and why what sort of you really valued about this tree and, um and nature in general a little bit
1: yeah of course um I do see trees as being more like non-human persons rather than inanimate objects. And ever since I was a little kid and just loving to climb trees, I've been inspired and, and awestruck by them. They're so crucial to life on this planet and we have a lot to learn from them. And to me, trees represent balance in so many ways. So they're the bridge between the earth and the sky. Their deep roots seek water underground and stabilize the soil structure, and provide a wealth of habitat and food for other organisms. And then they're reaching branches, harness sun energy, and leaves release oxygen, the whole tree sequesters carbon from the atmosphere and regulates their climate. And um, they're just amazing. So to me, trees are a standing model for how to be in a perfect balance, kind of in right relationship with ourselves and with all of nature. Because if we don't choose to proactively protect nature, it will systematically be destroyed for personal gain and profit. And it happened in our backyard, and it's happening every single day. As wise as the trees are, they don't speak the language of the law and progress and development. And they need our help. If now is not the time to protect them, then when? if it's not going to be you or me, then who?
0: The removal of trees in the name of growth and development is a symptom of the inherent devaluing of nature that is characteristic of our current colonial and capitalist system. How can we reframe our relationship with nature and recognize the trees themselves as both valuable elements of the landscape and of our communities?
2: One thing I would like to ask, then, maybe as sort of a, a wrap-up or looking back on this experience, you talked about, you know, how has this changed your perspective on standing up for nature and protecting nature, that it seems like it's given you some new drive. Is there any other ways this has changed how you might be um, active in protecting nature?
1: It's up to us, it's up to me to do what I can to protect, what I value in this world, and. Even if it feels small and insignificant, like sitting beside a tree for a day, it's something and it's a start. And I realized that I have I have a responsibility. I have an ability to respond to, you know, the situations that happen that affect our day to day lives and our communities. And it's important. And if I can do, if I can make small actions, like this and create a movement to stop this kind of thing or at least to make it more difficult for it to happen in the future maybe developers will think twice and maybe other people like me dealing with some kind of situation in the future will have better
2: support yeah some some thinking about uh, how to be inspired and how to like take this energy and this anger and all those feelings and create action out of them and, and, and move forward. So that's really cool to hear. Yeah.
1: yeah. Transmuting this energy of death into new life. Mm-hmm. Because that's the story of the forest as well. You know, trees have to die to make space for new beings to come. And it's not exactly what happened here, but I can take inspiration from that, from the forest, to move forward. And that feels like it's in alignment with the greater good. Thank you for your interest and for your questions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for talking to me and um you know, for having these very thorough answers and being just really open.
0: You're listening to Terra Informa. That was Terra Informer Elizabeth Dowdell in conversation with Kelsey Moore, talking about the value of our non-human relations. Hearing Kelsey's story reminds us how our deep connections to our environment drive us towards action to protect it, something the Tunaha Nation have demonstrated in their right to protect their territory. Tree protection goes much deeper than a single tree the Tunaha Nation, on whose territory the city of Nelson sits. In 1991, up in the Purcell Mountain Range, the Gatma a sacred place for the Tunaha people, was proposed to be developed into a ski resort. This area is home to the grizzly bear spirit and is also ecologically important grizzly bear habitat. Here's Troy Sebastian, a contractor for the Tunaha Nation, sitting down with Dylan Hall to explain the significance of Gatmuk.
1: Troy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for
2: agreeing to speak with me today.
0: Thanks for creating space to
3: uh, speak truth to power and tell folks what uh, the Nation has been doing to protect Gatmuk uh, on the land, in the courts, and in the hearts and minds of uh, CFE all across Turtle Island.
2: So I want to start with Gatmuk, if you're okay with
1: that. I'm... Really curious, this is so much about a place, but the Supreme Court, people listening, me, many of us haven't experienced this place. Would you mind describing Gatmuk and the experience of being there or a personal memory of being there?
3: In 2010, the Sanatana Nation uh, provided a, a declaration called the Gutmook Declaration, which people can look online and uh, check out. It is a special place uh, in Tanaka territory, in Tanaka Amukas. It's about uh, 90 kilometers west of Invermere. Uh, A lot of folks in Alberta know where Invermere is. And uh, it's a a gorgeous valley that is the home of the grizzly bear spirit, Khalsa as we know it. And it's a place that has significant uh, spiritual meaning uh, for our beliefs and for our practices and, and for our, uh, for our, our, you know, our legal, uh, traditions of, of what it is to be Tanakha. And, uh, it's so a very special place. It's hard to convey exactly, you know, why it is. Um, being there is, 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 uh, is the, the best medicine in a lot of ways.
0: First proposed in 1991 by Glacier Resorts Limited, the Jumbo Glacier Resort was to be located on Gatmuk lands and would offer year-round skiing and tourism. The Tunaha Nation opposed the project, and a decades-long battle to protect the trees, lands, and waters began. The resort would make this area of their territory inaccessible, make ecologically sensitive grizzly bear habitat unrecognizable, and expand a tourism industry from which the Tunaha would receive few benefits. In 2005, the company received their Environmental Impact Assessment Certificate required for construction, despite opposition from the Tunaha Nation and members of the local community. On November 15, 2010, a contingent of Tunaha citizens delivered the Gatmuk Declaration to the Provincial Legislature in Victoria. declaration outlines the spiritual significance of Gatmuk and is an expression of Tunaha sovereignty and stewardship principles. The declaration also indicated the nation was not interested in negotiating design elements to minimize environmental impacts anymore and was outright opposed to the construction.
3: What the nation has determined is to use its that, you know at least four hundred generations of knowledge and experience with this with this place Tell people who don't know uh, about it, to tell them how important it is and why it should not be subject to uh, a development. So that's what the the nation has undertaken um, for the better part. well, ever since this project's been uh, proposed. But definitely, uh, since the Talmouth declarations come out, we've been able to tell people, specifically about the spiritual, sacred nature of the area.
0: In 2012, Glacier Resorts Limited was granted a Master Development Agreement, an MDA, by the Government of British Columbia. An MDA is a legal agreement containing all the terms and conditions under which the resort can be developed, including land tenures, insurance requirements, fees in terms of renewal and default. In response, the Tunaha Nation filed a legal challenge in provincial court Claiming the project would infringe on their religious freedoms, considering the sacredness of the site as home of the grizzly bear spirit. The case moved through the BC courts, with courts ruling against the Tunaha Nation. Eventually, the case landed before the Supreme Court of Canada in 2017. The Supreme Court also ruled against the nation, claiming that the project did not violate religious freedoms ending the nation's legal battle against the project. Here's Troy and Dylan talking about that case.
3: We posed a, a legal challenge that the Supreme Court had not really considered and had not heard before. Since the the, since the charter, since the um, establishment of the Section 35 of the Constitution, average on rights and Title um, section of the of the Constitution, most, if not all, Aboriginal peoples, as defined by the Constitution and, and Canada, have been fought on those grounds, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so our case was doing an, an area of law that had not really been uh, deeply considered. Really, has. so that that was like the significance of it. And the Supreme Court dropped the ball big time. I mean, the the uh, you know the Globe and Mail a, uh, ran the, the headline the next day was "Supreme Court Deals below to Indigenous Peoples," and that's exactly what they did. You know, our culture, our religion, uh, our spiritual practices, our connection to that place is not as important as the the essentially uh, you know interest of of, of economic development. Uh, because this ruling is an act of erasure. This the, the intent here is to is to you know erase Tanah.
0: However, despite the Supreme Court ruling in favor of the resort the development was facing challenges on other fronts. The environmental approvals granted by the government require that work begin within five years, and the resort had not started substantial construction, even after the first approval was extended by a further five years. In 2015, the courts of British Columbia ruled against the resort, and the approval was considered expired. This left a window of opportunity for the Tunaja Nation and project opponents. With funding from the federal government and private environmental groups, the project opponents purchased the land and development rights in the area. With this purchase, the Tunaha Nation, Government of British Columbia, and Government of Canada had the area declared as Canada's newest Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area, or IPCA, protecting the land from further development. After three decades of resistance, negotiating with project proponents, protesting the development decisions, and powering through multiple defeats in court. Finally, in January of this year, 2020, the Tunaha Nation and environmental advocates were able to protect this area of immense natural significance and cultural value. Both of our stories today highlight the importance of safeguarding the natural world. Whether you are a single person trying to save one tree or a collective of advocates engaged in a decades-long fight to protect Indigenous homelands and sacred spaces. Looking after our natural world requires concentrating our efforts on local issues while supporting the ongoing work of Indigenous land defenders. To be an ally or a co-conspirator means recognizing our shared connection to the non-human world we hold so dear. I hope today's stories inspired you to look into the ways you can take action in your local communities and support indigenous sovereignty. As natural spaces and services are devalued in favor of development and economic growth, it is up to all of us to speak for the trees. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of wonderful volunteers. Big shout out this week to Elizabeth Dowdell and Dylan Hall for the interviews, and Andrea Miller and Sonic Patel for researching and writing this episode. The episode was produced by me, Charlotte Thomason. You can reach us for comments or questions via our email, terra at cgsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. We'll catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.